On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menas. And joining me for today's podcast, I have a special guest, Australian fast bowler, Josh Hazelwood. Josh, how are you? Good, thanks. Now, how's the hot spot in your back? Uh, it's going pretty well. It was it was only a minor injury, so I thought it was a good time to, to get everything right um, this time of year and you know hit that next summer, I guess, full steam. So it's feeling good and um, you know starting to do a few more things around training, which is good. So will we see you back in action for the, the Pakistan Test Series in sort of late September, October? Is that the aim? Yeah, that's the aim. Um, that's the goal at this stage. So, working back from there, we obviously have to build up bowling um, for you know six or eight weeks before then. So, um, but yeah, halfway through September, I think we leave, which will be um, you know plenty of time for me to get right. And, and are you a good cricket watcher? Some cricketers they really hate it when they're injured and they have to sort of watch. How are you? Yeah, I guess the Australian team at the moment are playing at, at night, so it's probably a good thing we can't stop and watch. But yeah, I don't I don't watch too much cricket really. Um, you know, probably big bash and, and shorter form cricket more so and you know have a glance at scores in, in test cricket and things around the world so yeah I'm not not too bad of a watcher you probably have to do a lot of scouting though like getting sent lots of tapes of batsmen is that right yeah that's right we, we watch a bit of vision before I guess leading into series depending on who we're playing but yeah I if we're playing someone say England next and they're playing a series you know against India later in the year you know I'll tune in and watch a bit of that excellent well listeners we've got an action-packed show for you today Josh and I are going to wrap up all the cricket news. We're going to have a bit of chat about Josh's career so far. And then maybe I'll end it all by finding out what Josh does away from the cricket field. But let's start things off, Josh, with a bit about you. You've taken 228 wickets for Australia in all formats. But for as long as I can remember, you were touted as a future test star. You're the youngest ever fast bowler to play for New South Wales. I think you were 17. Um, Do you feel like it was sort of destiny? Yeah, I guess you could say that. As you said, I was always always sort of touted and, and earmarked, I guess, at a young age and, and made the move down to Sydney when I was 18. Um, Where from? From from Bendemeer, just near Tamworth, yep. um, northern New South Wales. Um, made the move down when I was um, after I was turned 18 and, and, and played for New South Wales before that, actually, in a, in a tour match against New Zealand. So, yeah, I guess earmarked at a young age and um, I guess... It's it's always hard to plan ahead, but I was injured for quite a while there through sort of nineteen to, to twenty two and at different stages and it was tough tough years and, and got through it and I guess silver lining on the other side. Yeah, it seems like that age for most fast bowlers is quite difficult where your body's sort of growing at different speeds or you know, Pat Cummins had some injuries around that age. Do you sort of know why that is? I think it's just your, your body's still growing um, and, your, and your bones sort of haven't caught up, I guess. The, the density of the bone hasn't quite caught up to, to how powerful and tall you are, I guess, and it's, and it's a little bit weak. So I think you'll find most injuries around that age are, are bone-related. And it's just sort of waiting for your sort of muscle mass to fill out a bit? Yeah, that's right, waiting for that bone density to, to catch up, I guess, and by about 23, 24, then, then everything's um, together and intact. And, and did you have a good sort of support unit around you to keep your feet grounded, you know, while you 
you were coming up through the ranks? Did what you know your family or what sort of influences do you have around you? Yeah, I think when I was obviously when I was really young and um, growing up in the country is obviously a lot different to, to Sydney. But yeah, we were just always outside playing. With it didn't matter what sport it was. Um, I have a brother who's who's about two years older than me, and you know we played played outside all the time together. And yeah, when it was cricket on weekends and and soccer in in winter and and different things. So I was always outside. Good fun. At what point did your brother stop stop you bowling at him when you got too quick? <laughs> no, I don't think he did at all. He's quite a handy cricketer as well. So it's probably why I'm a bowler, and and he was always batting. So um, I couldn't get him out. Yeah. Now, now now that I've got you on the podcast, I have to make an apology. I really tried to get a nickname up and running for you called. <laughs> hazelnut or hazelnuts <laughs> and it just didn't take so i'm really sorry i really tried that's all right i've heard those um, left right and center so have you got hazelnut before oh plenty of times at, at fine leg and um, at different stages so everyone who says it thinks they're the first one to come up with it too so okay, so i wasn't i just think it's because you bowl good nuts hazelnut <laughs> hazelnut with the good nuts anyway all right let's move on now and talk about the australian one day tour in england uh, it's, it's a new look Australian side. Um, obviously, you're such a, a big part of the Australian team in all formats. How do you see this sort of new era now for the team? I think it's exciting. Um, you know, having spent the three or four days in Brisbane with the with the guys before they left, and that was obviously the first couple of days that, that Justin Langer was around as well. And we had quite a few meetings, one on one, and team meetings as well. Um, so he he sort of put his put, got his points across, and um, it was a really good vibe, I guess. So it sort of the start of something new and a lot of young guys around, inexperienced guys who sort of brought a lot of energy to the group and um, it just had a bit of a different feel, I guess. So I think that's carried on in England, even though we went down the first game, you know, it was close and I think it's a good starting starting point to, to build on, obviously heading into the World Cup. Have you heard anything from the, the camp over there about how they're going and, and how sort of the new look teams come together? Do you uh, keep in contact? Yeah, keep in contact with a couple of guys and um, they've all sort of, you know, been on the same page. It's uh, you know, there's plenty of energy and it's a great vibe, and everyone's having a good time. And I guess the environment they're cre- trying to create is is working, and you know, it's quite a fresh start. So it's it's um, exciting. Yeah, I wonder how it's going to differ from under Darren Lehman. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, the coaches are obviously a little bit different. Wolf was quite laid back, and I guess he'd been on on the road for quite a while as well. Been doing the job for I think four or five years, and um, that can take its toll as well. It, we're away from home quite a lot, and he obviously coaches you know pretty much all the formats. So that's going to be the tough thing for JL as well. I think um, you know the next you know three or four years that he's coaching, he's doing every format. It's just going to take its toll mentally as well as physically, and um, you know he's quite a strong individual so I think he'd be right he's big into fitness he is he's very much into fitness and I think that's good there's um you know maybe a couple of guys around the team sort of starting to slack off in that in that area but um you know all the guys are looking good now yeah I think Adam Gilchrist made a, a funny joke on the back page saying that he's not surprised Buff wasn't too hard on the fitness so you get different characters from different coaches now you're not on social media is that right that's correct is yeah. that a conscious decision or uh, I just never really started I guess being from the country I guess I was always outdoors and, and never sitting inside on the computer or anything so yeah just never had an interest in it really now I bet you were happy about that when the whole sandpaper controversy <laughs> kicked off that you weren't on social media yeah that's right you can obviously hide uh, pretty easily if you're not on social media and you don't get stuck reading you know thousands of comments on different on different sites so it's um yeah it's a good thing yeah do you do you read um articles about you or do you sort of 
just ignore it all? Um, I wouldn't say ignore it all. I definitely read some, um, not much compared to, to other guys, I think. So I sort of steer clear when I can, but... Yeah, I guess if it's a positive one, it's good to read. <laughs> yeah, I would find it hard, though, reading. I mean, Steve Smith said he used to read everything. I would find that quite debilitating, especially if some of it's not always positive. It could just sort of get in your head, maybe. I guess it depends on, on who's writing it as well. If it's a ex-cricketer, I guess it might have um, a bit more weight if, if Smith is reading those than, than another writer. But, yeah, I guess everyone's, everyone's different and it's up to them. Yeah, so hopefully Smith's what ignored what I wrote about him, <laughs> which is mainly good. I'm a big Steve Smith uh-huh. fan. Now, I heard you say on the back page about the events in Cape Town that, you know, the day after it happened, it was hard to go out in the field. You also said you had no idea about the plot to tamper with the ball. But how are you now, sort of a few months down the track, sort of re- recovered and uh, reflecting on what happened? Yeah, I mean, it's it seems quite a while ago now, um, a couple of months. But obviously, I haven't played cricket since that tour. But I think the guys over in England now are moving on pretty well. There's obviously copying it from the crowd and, and different things, which is to be expected. But I think the best thing is to get back out there and get this fresh start going, as I mentioned before, and the exciting times ahead. So I think it's all about you know, moving forward and, and looking the page. ahead. That's right. Turning the page. That's right. With an insight into that tour, I think some maybe casual fans of cricket maybe didn't realise how stressful the tour was leading up to the the third test. I mean, I don't know how David Warner can go from T20 captain to to taking sandpaper on the ground or giving it to someone without something happening in between. I mean, was it a stressful tour? Uh, I guess it's it's a big tour always, South Africa, um, coming on the back of an Ashes as well, which was quite stressful, I guess, being at home. but. All big tours are, are stressful, and I guess it's you know that added pressure we probably put on ourselves as much as anyone to to win, and that's probably you know where I guess the stress has come from that we're pretty much measured basically on our cricket ability, um, not as people off the field, which we probably have gone away from in the last I'm not sure six months, twelve months, and we're focused solely on results, and that I guess drives people to do different things, and um, you know we're only measured on our cricket success, so I don't think that's how it is now, I think it's changed a little bit and, you know, JL has talked a lot about how we're behaving off the field and we're going to be measured on that as well. So that's, that's a good sign, I think. Yeah, and, you know, JL sort of said that he thought maybe at times the team acted like spoiled brats. And I don't think, I don't want to take that quote out of context because he wasn't really laying into you guys. He just thought maybe you crossed the line or whatever, that mythical line. Do you feel now that as a leader in the team you want to set new standards? Absolutely, yeah. I think it's, uh, as I said, it's a great time to, to start those things, I guess, and put them into place. And I think JL said a lot about, you know, you can write so many things on the wall, but if you don't live them, I guess, and live them every day at training and, and playing and, and touring around, um, they don't mean anything. So it's about putting them into place and making it a habit, I guess, and pulling people up if they're, if they're not, not doing those things and, you know, hopefully that environment we can create, you know, does those things. Yeah, um, I, I heard Steve War on a podcast yesterday and he was talking about he was 33 when he was first given the Australian captaincy and when you look at Steve Smith at I think 26 when he took over the full-time captaincy, that's a big difference in life experience and um, just general captaincy experience. So perhaps Smith was a bit young when given the job? I don't know. Yeah, potentially. I mean... As far as if you just on field cricket wise, I think he was ready. He probably wasn't ready with everything that came with it, I guess. And Steve being Steve War, sorry, being thirty three, as you said. And I guess it's a different time now where you're, we're basically cricketers from when we leave school, I guess, and we don't really experience life outside of cricket and the cricket environment. 
Um, whereas, you know, back in those times, they probably did. They probably got out in the world and had a few jobs and learned a lot of life lessons, I guess you could say. And now you sort of go straight from school into into a cricket environment and cricket is all you know. So I think that's another good point where we can get maybe get outside our cricket lifestyle and, you know, interact with, with whether it's a community or, or just other people um, and learn. That's going to be a good thing as well. Yeah, I guess getting different perspectives. And um, how did you react to the, the reaction from Australia to what happened in South Africa? I mean, that must have been quite shocking for the players. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We obviously went um, went to bed that night, and Australia hadn't woken up yet, so it hadn't hit hit back in Australia. And then um, when we woke up, yeah, it was it was quite surprising, I guess, how big how big a reaction it was. It wasn't massive, I guess, in South Africa. All the Australian riders sort of know it's going on here and there and and around from different teams, and people have been done in the past and. Um, I guess they sort of talked it down a bit, if anything, and then once it hit back here, the media sort of went the other way, I guess, and the reaction was was massive, yeah. Yeah, I was up watching the cricket, and um, I I went to bed thinking, I wonder what's going to happen when I get up, and it was just everywhere, really sort of just was like a tsunami of Mm. um, reaction. Well, have you come up with a tactic, though, because you feel that fine leg a lot, you're going to get handed lots of sandpaper over the next 12 months. Have you, have you come up with an idea of how you're going to face that one? Uh, not, not just yet. I liked um, Nathan Lyons in, I think he was in one of the tour matches in England. Um, this obviously only works in England, but I think they said, uh, do you have any sandpaper in your pocket? He said, no, nah, just the ashes, mate. So. We can use that one in England, but yeah, um, we'll have to come up with something else. Yeah, I would just I would just go with it now. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think you got to you got to roll with the crowd most of the time, and you know, try and get them on your side. So, um, especially in the UK, they're they're great banter actually most of the time, and they sort of sing songs, and you can you can take part, and um, it's good fun. Excellent. Now, a couple of quick questions before we get into the week in cricket headlines. You were such a big part of Australia's team that won the 2015 World Cup at the MCG. We are basically a year out from the 50-over World Cup. The team hasn't really had a great run of results. What do you think the team needs to do in the next year to be ready for that tournament? Uh, I think, first of all, on this tour, they'll get a lot out of it. Um, There's quite a number of key players missing, I think, probably even five or six um, who who would expect to be in the team, I guess, and it leaves open a lot of opportunities for the guys that are there now. So hopefully a couple of those guys can stand up and, and grab those opportunities um, to really strengthen our squad. And oh, I think it's just playing consistent cricket. Um, you know, we we play some great one day games, but in the in the in between those games, you know, we play pretty poorly. So it's and that can be said across all the formats really um, over the last 12, 18 months. So if we can be consistent, I think you know that's going to go a long way to to you know being competitive, I guess, in the World Cup and winning. One of the challenges I see for the 50-over team is that it's rare that the, the best 11 or 12 players are on the park, except when it's the World Cup. Yeah. You know, you've got a lot of players injured or, or rotating in and out of squads, and the, the schedule is so packed that it's, it's hard to tell what our best team is. So I guess, do, do they need to sort of try and get some continuity leading into that tournament to people so people know their roles you know you you know you t- people need to know they're a death bowl okay yeah. practice that is that right yeah absolutely i agree with that definitely um you see with the successful teams you see england for the last 12 months they've had predominantly the same team same 11 or 12 players that have played for them so people start to know their roles and where they bat they bat in the same spot every time and they bowl at the same time so it's, one day cricket's very much like that now and i guess our team probably through I guess, you know, just the amount of cricket we play, the quick sort of rest here and there, and you've always got a, 
a new quick coming in and where to, when does he bowl and a different spinner sometimes and, and batsman resting here and there. So it, the team does change quite a bit. I'd say we'd need to get that you know that core group of whether it's 12, 13, 14 players and, and stick with them for the next 12 months, I guess, leading into the World Cup. Billy Stanlake's a pretty exciting fast bowler. Um, so tall, so quick. He presents challenges that you don't face a lot, isn't that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, you talk to all the batters in, even in the Queensland Bulls team or, or Australian teams that have faced him, and they they don't like batting against him. That's for sure. So, um, you know, I think he's just he's such a unique unique talent. I guess he's so tall and quick, as you said, and you know, hopefully his body holds up to the to the rigors of fast bowling, and he can play for Australia for quite a while. Excellent. Now, I had Stuart McGill in here for a podcast over the summer, and he said that when he used to bat at test level, sometimes he didn't see the ball. You know, you're a number 10 or 11. How do you go batting? Do you enjoy the challenge of getting out there, and or, or do you sort of not? I'd say at different times. I think if I'm there with a batter and, you know, we're, we're building a first innings lead or we're trying to make runs in the second innings or whatever, then it's it can be enjoyable challenging but a lot of the time it's it's not very enjoyable <laughs> facing the the quicks um you know south africa's probably got one of the quickest attacks so that wasn't that wasn't very nice facing those guys but uh, i mean we take a lot of pride in in how we train and, and bat in the nets and you know we do a lot of a fair bit of work actually off the park and you know for that little time we're on the field hopefully it, it works out for us but you know we try and enjoy ourselves out there but um, it's pretty scary, yeah. Yeah, but the, not all the batsmen have to bowl, yet all the bowlers have to bat. There's some Whoever came up with cricket was a bit unfair at the beginning. Exactly right. And you, and you can see the, the guys' faces, the part-time bowlers, who are obviously batters, um, when the captain tells them to warm up, you see their face, they get very, very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually enjoyable to see. <laughs> Shoes on the other foot. That's right. And just in your, your career so far, What's a bowling performance to you that stands out? Not a team performance, but when you've sort of felt that you're really in the zone with the, the cherry. Yeah, I'd have to think back to a, a couple of times, but probably the first pink ball test against New Zealand. The the wicket was obviously pretty helpful, but I think Mitch Stark went down in the first innings, I think it was. Um, I, sorry, Nitra, but you made history and took the first wicket ever with the pink ball. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Well done. Thank you. Yeah, but Mitch was sort of the, I guess leading the attack at that stage and went and still is probably but went down in the in the first innings and we only had myself I think Sids and and Mitch Marsh I guess and obviously Gary was there but the wicket was quite helpful for the seamers so I guess that put a lot of pressure on me to to, to perform and at that stage I probably wasn't quite cemented in the team and had a bit of a lean summer before that so I think that that game you know did did wonders for me it gave me a lot of confidence that I could you know win games for Australia I guess and and take big big wickets so that one sticks out yeah does the pink ball swing a little bit more than the red ball um i think at times probably as we saw england when they bowled at night with a brand new one uh this year just gone it it did quite a bit so but vice versa i mean this was probably the flattest wicket we played on against england with the the pink ball um compared to the years before and it didn't do much during the day to be honest maybe a little bit of reverse swing but yeah, it's 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 big difference if you get that new ball at night. And you know, you've played in England a couple of times. <laughs> How have you gone bowling in English conditions as compared to here, where you don't get the same bounce? Yeah, I think it's that that zip off the wicket that you probably don't get on the slower slower English wickets. Um, you know, I think I've learned a lot from that tour, and I didn't do too badly. I got I think sixteen wickets at about twenty five, so I was you know reasonably happy. I think I just sort of fell away towards the end of the tour, which was probably more body physically than than anything else than skill so 
I think I learned a lot from that tour and hopefully take it into to next time. Yeah, I think you copped a little bit of unfair expectations because you always compared to Glenn McGrath and he's done so well in England. Everyone, I think, thought you'd just go over and take 30 wickets and, you know, run through them, but it's not quite that easy at test level. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, yeah, I think it was probably the expectation, I guess, that... And it was it was tough at the time to to bowl with the two Mitches at, at certain stages. They're both attacking. They both can go for runs at different stages. So, but they can both win your games in in half an hour. So it's it's good and bad to bowl with them sometimes. And I guess it sort of put a bit more pressure on me to to contain and and yeah. I guess it was it was difficult at some stages. But you're very much looking forward to getting over there next year for the World Cup and the Ashes. I can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, you know a massive. Three or four months in England, two of the biggest things that we that we play for and to have them after each other at a pretty special time. So, yeah, it's going to be exciting. I hope you like the English food because you're going to be there for a <laughs> yeah, while. That's right, yeah, it's all good. All right, listeners, we're going to take a very quick break. I just want to remind you that you can keep up with all the action from the one-day tour in England at the dailytelegraph.com.au slash cricket or the australian.com.au slash cricket. News Corp has two great reporters over there, Pete Lawler, and Russell Gould. And remember, you can find all the links to this podcast at my website, andrewmensel.com. Do you have a website, Josh? Uh, no. Yes, yeah, no. so we've worked out. Creators <laughs> don't need them, only hack journos and podcasters. <laughs> and if you get a chance, can you please rate and review the podcast on whatever app you listen to the show? All right, we'll be back with the cricket headlines. Welcome back to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. Men is here with Josh Hazelwood, star Australian fast bowler. So I've got a special guest to go through the cricket headlines. I've got to get some insights from a current cricketer. So first news since the last podcast, James Sutherland has stepped down as CEO of Cricket Australia. Uh, he's given a year's notice. I think it has generally been accepted that he got more right than he got wrong in the job. Josh, what were your dealings with him like? Yeah, I think he was, um, as you said, he, he got more right than he did wrong. Um, he had a lot of, I guess, things come up in his time that were, were tough to deal with, especially recently. But I think, you know, they, they've gone through, you know, all the positive stuff he's done in the last, I think, nearly 20 years. So the game of cricket's grown a hell of a lot in, in Australia and um, he's obviously behind a lot of that. So he's been fantastic at, at CA and, um, yeah, it's going to be tough shoes to fill. Yeah, big challenge for whoever comes in. All right, the next big news, and I take so much joy in reading this one out, Scotland beat England by six runs in a one-day international leading up to the series against Australia. Well, what a what a wonderful day. It's cricket to see an associate nation beat the Poms like that. Yeah, absolutely. It was great to see. Um, you know, Scotland and, and Ireland and teams like that, they're, they're bogey teams for, for some guys, and it's, you know, it's always tough to come up against them, to be honest. So, um, yeah, I mean, with the 10-team... World Cup coming up, you know, a lot of those teams aren't going to be there, so it's a little bit disappointing, I guess, but um, it's always good to see the Scots Scots beat England. Yeah, a lot of talk has come up about the World Cup since that result, and I've sort of done a lot of thinking about the decision, and my summation is that perhaps when the ICC made the decision to reduce the World Cup, in that context, it may have been correct, but I don't think they took into account how much these nations would develop between when they made the decision and the World Cup next year. Because I think we've seen you know, some of these smaller nations really come on in the last few years. And 
just much more competitive, especially in the white ball format. So I think maybe at the time they thought it was the right decision, but now it's it's looking like it's not. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, we're probably going to have to take another look at it after this World Cup. And I mean, even teams like Afghanistan and those guys, are, Nepal, you know, Nepal, UAE. Um, you know, they're, they're tough teams to play, especially in their home conditions. And um, I guess being in England, it, it might suit them as well. But, yeah, I think there'll be a few of the, the more predominant teams, I guess, happy that they're not there, to be yeah, honest. It's nerve-wracking for Australian players when you come up against these teams, isn't it? Because you're expected to win. So yeah, you're on, the, you can't the, lose. You can't yeah, win. That's right. Yeah, all the pressure's on you. So, um, you know, they can, pray, they can play freely and, and sometimes it comes off. So it's, there's a plenty of pressure there. Right. Now, the next bit of news staying with the associate theme is Ireland has entered Test Cricket recently, but now we have another Test Nation, Afghanistan. They're playing India in their first ever Test. When we record this, it's the end of the first day, but I just think it's so exciting to see Ireland and Afghanistan coming to Test Cricket. You you look at the story, especially around Afghanistan, a war-torn country being able to produce cricketers like Rashid Khan. I mean, this is what cricket needs. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, I think about, you know, they've been playing T20 cricket and a bit of one-day cricket here and there, but... To give them the opportunity to play test cricket, it's just a, it's such a different test for the the individual and the team, and you know it's something that those guys will thrive on, I think, and you know really enjoy that opportunity to play against India. In India, is, is quite special, so um, they'll be loving these the five days coming up or, or four four days to come. But yeah, it's a great opportunity for them. Yeah, Australia have been criticised for not playing some of the lesser nations a lot historically i don't think we played new zealand for like 30 or 40 years we just Mm. ignored them do you think that's something they've got to try and squeeze in the odd match against these nations just to a show sort of give them a a measuring block of where they are against the best in the world but also just for the promotion in those countries yeah i think so um you know greatest obviously probably talk about losing money when we play these sides because the crowds don't turn up and different things but i think that the stuff it does for the other team and their home crowd and their fans and things like that, it really grows cricket in their country. If they're saying, you know, we come up against Australia in a test match or a, or a one-day series, it does wonders for their home home cricket and yeah, absolutely. builds cricket up in, in their country. So I get, I, I'd love to play those teams more often. Um, Scheduling is the hardest thing in cricket these days and fitting it in is, is another another challenge altogether. Yeah, I don't mind the idea of the winter series up north in, in sort of northern Queensland or even yeah. Alice Springs or something. Um I think it would still be good on TV and would take cricket to areas that don't have it. But I I think it's something Australia needs to be mindful of in the next few years as these countries come up. Absolutely, yeah. In the in Darwin and, and Cairns and Townsville, places like that, I think the crowds did turn up. You know, they don't get any cricket, Australian cricket during the summer, so I think they turn up in winter for sure. Definitely. Now, moving on to the next headlines, records have tumbled in 50 over cricket. New Zealand teenager Amelia Kerr shattered a world batting record in women's one-day international cricket with a blistering. 232 not out against Ireland, surpassing the 229 made by Aussie legend Belinda Clark. That's her medal at the AB Awards that is given to the best women's cricketer every year. And if that wasn't enough for Amelia Kerr, she took five for 17. Not a bad match, is it? A double hundred and five for... Yeah, I'd probably retire after that. It's not getting any better, is it? Yeah, um, there's only one way from there. That's right. Yeah, it's a fantastic effort. Um, you don't hear those numbers every day, and to put them, you know, back to back in the same game is pretty special. Yeah. Now, there's been talk that we will see 500 in a men's one-day international. What do you think? I think we will. Yeah, in 
small what, grounds. What, what have we got now? Four sixty or something? Four, four, yeah, four sixty four, something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. If you get the right ground, right conditions, um, you know the ball certainly flies around at Wanderers in South Africa, so that's a chance there. And Eden Park, Eden Park, the way the batters go these Eden days, and, yeah, flat wickets, you know, exactly. <laughs> everything. So, is it? A, do you feel sometimes that white ball cricket has become a batsman's game? Uh, I think from time to time, yeah. I think the crowd obviously want to see you know fours and sixes rather than wickets a lot of the time. So high scores. But, you know, often we see the best games are the, are the low-scoring tight ones where it's, mm. you know, 180 versus 180. Um, that fantastic match in the World Cup against yeah, New Zealand yeah. where you guys almost won and got within one that's, wicket. That's right, yeah. That's another low-scoring game. So we can have some crackers that are low-scoring, but I think, you know, the crowds want to see the big hits and, and all that sort of stuff. So the wickets are quite flat. Yep. Do you work on your slower balls? Like, I speak to Andrew Ty, he says he's got, well, lots of slower <laughs> balls. I mean, his number's like 22. Yeah. I don't think he's got 22, but do you, do you work on your variation for, um, T20 cricket. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't played much T20 cricket in the last mm. uh, four or five years, actually, with it you know overlapping with with Test cricket. But definitely in the one day format, you got to work on you know everything basically, cover all bases for you know for when you might be needed bowling wise at the death or at the start or, or wherever. So yeah, always always trying to get more variations for sure. Do you have a knuckleball? Uh, I've been working on one. Yeah, don't have twenty two like AJ, but um, <laughs> one one might do me. And that's a hard one because you sort of got to get your fingers, you know, your two knuckles behind the ball almost, yeah. and your fingers around it. I mean, my hands aren't big enough, but that must be hard to just get it sort of going towards the batsman. Yeah, it's quite tough. Um, I mean, it's just something you got to practice, really. You know, it helps when you have a big hand like like me and, and most fast bowlers, but it's just something you got to practice and, and get the, get used to the feel, I guess, of you know, of you know, bowling with your knuckles, I guess. Yeah, I think there was a, a legendary Aussie spinner that used to do that. Maybe Jack Iverson. I could be wrong, but he used to spin the ball like that off his knuckle away from the batsman. Yeah, can you imagine trying to face that? That'd be impossible. Yeah. Might have been John Gleeson, was it? Or yeah, that's yeah. right, Johnny yeah. Gleeson. Yeah. All right, well, that was the week in cricket headlines, and we're about to wrap up the podcast. But, Josh, we know you as a star cricketer. You're obviously a country boy, so you must love the country. But what do you do to sort of unwind and get away from cricket? I guess, you know, we're away so much. We're away for, I think, 280 days a year touring on, on average. So, you know, being at home is the sort of holiday that, that all the cricketers like and enjoy. And, you know, Hanging being, around the house. Being in their own home. Um, you know, we don't get to do it very often. And I guess, you know, you miss other things that, to do with your family and friends a lot of the time so it's good to you know I always go back to the country and, and see the family and friends you know try and do it as much as I can but at least once a year for for a week or so which is great and you know have a go have a game of golf and you know just hang out with the family and and see the see the nieces and nephews and things like that and um, it really gets you away from the game I guess and yeah it's really enjoyable. Lisa Healy was saying she's beaten Mitch Stark on the golf course recently how do you go against Starkey? Um, Stark is pretty good. He hits a hits it quite long. You know, he, he's playing quite a bit at the moment, to be honest. And I think him and, and Alyssa play play have their own have their own trophy as well at home. So, um, the Steely Cup, the Steely Cup, I think. So I wouldn't want to get beat by my. My, my wife definitely <laughs> so does Mitch beat you or he's a bit better than you um, he's probably a little bit better than me at the moment but um, yeah it depends how much we play really yeah well sounds like you have a very full schedule on the road all year so it's good to relax and just, just kick the feet up that's right yeah just get around home and, and, and even get, as I said go back and visit the family and just relax really great well Josh thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been really great to talk to a current cricketer about what's going on in the world of cricket 
Good luck with your recovery, and hopefully we'll see you back in action in September, October in the UAE. No worries. Thank you. Well, listeners, thank you so much for downloading the podcast again. Great to have Josh here. Not often I get to sit down with a test cricketer. If you want to get in contact with the show, the listener mail segment is coming back, so email ozcricketpod at gmail.com. Remember, keep up with all the action online with the tour in England, and we'll be back next week with another podcast.